You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 165 for June 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about preservation versus conservation and cities of the future. So get out your drafting table and pencils because we're creating the future and because the Sierra Archaeology podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Stephen in Calgary. Hello. Hey, so... It's Memorial Day weekend, a Sunday morning at our normal recording time, and you know, as can be predicted, I think everybody's out doing stuff. So, uh, and I, I will be soon. Actually, we're shifting our Memorial Day weekend just a couple of days because my brother-in-law's coming in uh, in two hours, and he's going to be here till Wednesday. So we're just kind of shifting our weekend, and we're going to have some some time with him out here. So that's why I'm able to make this, but. Anyway, how you doing, Stephen? And and I'm in Canada, so like we already <laughs> had our three day weekend, um, right? And and everybody in Canada is like sitting around all pissed off because they don't get Memorial Day off, <laughs> despite the fact that we already just had a three day weekend. Um, right, it's, it's Victoria Day, so where we uh, oh. uh, where Canadians celebrate, I guess, their Victorian values and uh, by going out and drinking a lot in parks. Okay, but, then uh, yeah. sounds good. So, mm-hmm. do you have? Does Canada have like a Memorial Day type of thing? Yeah, it's Victoria Day. It's it's oh, that's um, the, the same third. It's the third Monday, not the last Monday of May. I don't mean a. Um, I don't mean like a three day weekend in May. I mean a weekend or a day where they honor fallen veterans. Oh well, that's Remembrance Day. Oh, Remembrance Day. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, re- remember that one? Yeah. No, I don't actually. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> rem- remembrance Day. Uh, the U.S. used to celebrate it. Um, it's Veterans Day now. Oh, right, right. Yeah, well, no, and, and the original meaning was the people who, um, the people who died in World War One, right? Um, right. It, it's to uh, memorialize that and us, we mm-hmm. forget, you know, like, remember how bad war is. Right. And, and that was the original point. And then it got expanded to include all veterans, not, not just the fallen sure. uh, in the U.S., it, and then they, you know, but but then they're like, but we need something to honor the fallen. So that that's where yeah. Memorial Day comes in, and, yeah. and which is interesting because now um, it, it seems like a lot of the conversation for Memorial Day is, is like thanking veterans, and it's like, well, yeah, wait, you know, like um, it's it's kind of like mission creep. 
right? So <laughs> it is. It is. We actually talk about this in Civil Air Patrol a lot because we have uh, different events that we do for uh, Memorial Day and for Veterans Day, and we like to educate the public and say, you know, don't don't thank veterans for their service on Memorial Day. That's not what this day is for. It's a quiet day of reflection. Uh, if you want to do that or go camping, whatever you're going to do, but it's a quiet day of reflection to honor the people who have fallen in war or battle or as a result of their service to the country in some way or another. And then Veterans Day is not for that. Veterans Day is for honoring the people who are actually serving or have served in the military and, you know, didn't die. That's what Veterans Day is for. Two different holidays, if that's the right word. The weird thing is you don't get like a three day weekend for Veterans Day, but you do for Memorial Day. You know, that's if you're going to have a federal type holiday. I mean, it's not the same thing. It's not a day off for like a lot of things. But Memorial Day is. Well, it's still a federal holiday, though. So if you work in the federal setting, you do get the day off. Um, Sure. Which is weird because half the time it's like a Wednesday. Right. You know, and and I just broke up the week pretty well. (laughs) And and then you get things American Thanksgiving, which is on Mm -hmm. a Thursday. Yeah. And, And that that blows Canadians mind minds um <laughs> because it's like but it, but it's thursday and it's like yeah that that's why black friday is a thing because nobody's mm-hmm. going back to work for one day so every like hangs out and recovers from all the turkey and goes shopping yeah i don't know what the original intent behind a thursday was you know was it so we could have a four-day weekend was that like the intent you know i mean i don't really know i i think yeah. oh and i'm probably gonna get this wrong so um but it, It'll be recorded for posterity on this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that originally the president had to announce when Thanksgiving was, mm-hmm. like every year. Um, and, wow. and so, it, like, the date could move. It, it was kind of a floating holiday. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it's like Roosevelt or um, Teddy, uh, the first one. Yeah, early in the 20th century, somehow it got solidified as being on a thursday um hmm. which is just weird but so so november is really just kind of like useless because you end up with two federal holidays in the middle of weeks well i i looked up the wikipedia entry for thanksgiving and it's actually so complicated i can't just go right to the answer um there's a lot of stuff here <laughs> i can't just like skim it and find it so fixing date i don't know there's a lot of stuff so that's not what this podcast is about however and i i, I do see october 31st 1939 roosevelt proclamation changing the holiday to the next to the last thursday in november for business reasons business reasons that's what it says yeah so anyway. so like he, he had planned black friday all along i think i think he did yeah totally so all right. Well, uh, so this recording, what I want to discuss uh, first is I, I do a radio show, uh, an archaeology radio show. So if you're interested in hearing live archaeology discussion, you know, whatever that means, uh, whether I have guests or um, I've got a guy who's kind of becoming a regular co-host. He's a comedian here in town, but also a science enthusiast and a good friend of mine, fun person to talk to. His name's Brian Woods. And uh, he came down this last Friday, and it's the, the studio is in Carson City, Nevada, and it's a really small community radio station. I don't get any money; nobody does for doing any of that stuff. They just they they subsist on donations, like most community radio stations do. And uh, it's an hour long. It's at noon Pacific time uh, on Fridays. So if you want to tune in, knvc.org uh, forward slash listen dash live will get you there. And I will leave that link in the show notes so you can go find that. 
But also, uh, yeah, I so I just to, as an aside on that, I'm always looking for guests for that show. So if you're, you know, doing something you can talk about and you want to bring it in and do some public archaeology and possibly even take some calls, uh, you know, occasionally we do get calls into that show because that's what I want it to be as a call-in show, then, you know, let's let's do some public archaeology or, or maybe you've got a, a deep knowledge of some region of the country or something like that and you just want to talk about it. I'm not going to make you talk for a straight hour. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm an archaeologist, of course, so we'll just have a conversation about something, and it's nice and fun and, and super chill. If you want to hear back episodes of that, go over to arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology because I take every recording from that radio show and I put it in the archaeology show feed uh, for the archaeology show podcast. So um, that's cool, too. Anyway, uh, what I want to talk about is something that kind of came up after a discussion about ISIS, of all things. We were talking about an article where somebody went in and actually tried to value a small slice of a couple sites um, that were being heavily looted by ISIS, and or at least had been heavily looted by ISIS. And then, you know, ISIS profited from that because people have been throwing numbers around saying, oh, ISIS is making billions of dollars off of selling looted artifacts. But they want to say, well, how much are we actually talking about here? Like, what, what does this look like? And they created these algorithms, basically, based on the types of artifacts that typically come from these sites, because they don't really know it was dug up and sold, obviously. But the types of artifacts that would come from these sites and then looked on the antiquities market and, you know, the, the legal antiquities market and said, OK, what has this stuff sold for in the past? And then what's like the I think they called it the farm gate value, which is basically the the first person like whoever dug that up out of the ground and put it in their pocket and walked off the site. What did they sell it for? Because obviously they get a way lower price than the end price that's paid for that. So that's what we were talking about. But that that really veered off the rails fast. And we were talking about. And Stephen, I know you're going to have a lot to say about this, but we were talking about um, cities of the future and preservation. And anytime, because in conjunction with that article, I also saw another article where it was architects' renderings of what cities should look like in 50 years. I think it was 40 or 50 years. And of course, you can predict just without even seeing the pictures what they mean by that. They're all green. You know, there's there's vegetation everywhere because that's kind of the way modern building design is going is let's make this a whole community and let's make certain floors all, you know, gardens and we can take all our resources from this one place. We can recycle everything, bring it all in. Chances are people won't have to leave for most things. You can even work there, you know, all these things happening in one spot. And they're doing this in a lot of newer towers over in Asia and, uh, and even Dubai. And so that made me think, okay, so what does preservation look like? Because you think of every science fiction show you've ever seen, and again, I know it's fiction, but you think of every science fiction show you've ever seen based in the future, and you think of every artist's rendering of a future city you've ever seen, and every, you know, what does this look like? What don't you see? You don't see old buildings. <laughs> you just don't. So all this stuff that's on the National Register in this country is presumably torn down in 50 years, right? Uh, according to these artists' renderings, and we're not keeping anything. My question is, is that so bad? You know, is it so bad? Because we tend to we tend to move the goalposts on what history means, right? Like here in Reno, there's this whole movement by a very small group of people that are very vocal, though, for saving mid-century modern hotels. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Reno was founded in the 1860s, okay? And when Reno was founded in the 1860s, it was a dirty, dusty Western town that had displaced to the Paiute Indians that were living here originally on the Truckee River. 
put up a bunch of shacks and then people started making tons of money off the Comstock load, the silver up in Virginia City, and then gold at some point, other resources. They started putting up mansions. By the end of the 1800s, they started putting up buildings. Downtown Reno started to take form. And then the early part of the century, the 20th century, you know, bigger buildings coming in, casinos, gambling. I mean, that was just a fact of, of Western life. But then when Nevada legalized gambling, it was... Um, it you know Reno became of course known for that, and this is well before Las Vegas. Las Vegas was a dusty watering hole up until the fifties, so you know Las Vegas is a really new city in Nevada, but it's obviously enormous, probably because it's proximity to Los Angeles. But um, but Reno has been around and like that in a seedy, dirty gambling town for a really long time, and now all these older hotels that are basically uh, weekly or monthly rentals. But to be honest, a lot of low-income people live in there. Um, there is a lot of crime associated with these things. There's a lot of drug deals that happen there. There's, there's, um, you know, illegal prostitution. Prostitution is legal in the state of Nevada, but it's not legal within the city limits of Reno. So you have to go outside into the county, of course. And it's, uh, it's just people are they're tearing these down and putting up new buildings. And my question is, why are we saying that the character of Reno is the 1950s? When Reno goes much farther back than that, the character of Reno is the Truckee Meadows with teepees on it. The character of Reno is megafauna. I mean, where? how far back do you go? So, Stephen, what are your thoughts on this? Where do we put the starting point for what a, what the character of a city is? You know, what defines a city? What should we preserve and why? And should we preserve anything in a physical sense rather than just a pure digital and experiential sense and, and preserve it in our stories and our memories? What do you well, think? I'm not sure where to start on this topic. Um, <laughs> it's all over the place. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, a lot of thoughts. Let's see if I can remember them all. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to your to to what you're talking about with these uh, um, cities of the future and yes. and the unified look and feel of uh, essentially art palettes, right? Like mm-hmm. like when you are designing something, when you are planning something, like visually, uh, you tend to have a specific look and feel in mind. And and I, I see this a lot on Instagram with um, some of the menswear enthusiasts. Like mm-hmm. they particularly have a specific look and feel in mind as far as, you know, their outfits go. But it really works with certain backdrops, cer- certain yeah. settings. And, and it's really easy for people to be like, oh, this is going to be so awesome. I love this look. But then that's not where they're actually living or acting or, or doing stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's like, so if you want to be all like, you know, 1920s art deco, but then yeah, you're, you're working at a mid-century hotel. It doesn't really, you know, like you, you kind of stick out because you're not fitting in with the, the rest of the scenery. Right. Um, so, so for like the visions of the future, like architects and stuff like that is their bit, they have a specific setting that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, fit because it's, yeah. it's, yeah, like we tend to think in terms of like specific palettes, essentially. And and I I've, I think one of my favorite examples of this is uh, uh, the TV show uh, Poirot, mm-hmm. you know, particularly when it was a TV show, but also when they started doing the longer two hour, you know, like TV, made for TV movies things. Right. The, the novels, the stories take place. From like the 20s into the 40s and, and beyond. So there's a lot of stylistic changes that go on. But when they made the TV show, they made the 
conscious decision that okay we're setting it all in the 20s mm-hmm. and 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 because you know they, they had to dial it down it couldn't be all over the place part of doing that means all the buildings all the backdrops all the settings were 1920s like art deco style modern uh buildings yeah there there's nothing from like 1890 there's nothing from 1895. <laughs> you know, these buildings right. would still be there, right? Like, and yeah. and, and it's the notion that it, I, I always joke, like, in Poirot, it's the 1920s, but everything is new. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's like they totally just wipe out the past. And, and yeah. part, part of that is to establish that, that mood. Mm-hmm. Because if you had the complexity of, you know, reality, which is like all these time periods, you don't really get the same feeling off the setting. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they've got, what, 50 minutes to tell a story? And, and the yeah. setting is not the story. The setting sets the mood for this story. So we need to, you know, dial that all in and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, hurry up. And, and I think that's where a lot of, you know, these science fiction, you know, views of the cities are going. It's like, that's not the story. That's the mood. That's the backdrop. Mm-hmm. But that's how we think. Like, to, to move it forward yeah. to, to your, um, you know, talking about your mid-century thing. Is that yeah. people have specific ideas of what historical means, um, and, and we mm-hmm. all have this snapshot. And, and the example I've used since undergrad: Plains Indians. Yeah. If you think of the Sioux, you have a very specific view, you know, like picture in your mind, and it's not necessarily what they're doing today. Mm-hmm. It's probably what they were doing. At in the I don't know 1870s 1880s, mm-hmm. um, there, there's a particular photograph in our heads, a picture in our heads yeah. of what's what's going on. Like that, that's, that's completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. like they were doing th- different stuff before that. They're doing different stuff now, uh, and 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 that was a snapshot. And and in a lot of cases, I, I've noticed that some native groups really like that snapshot of what life was like at point of contact. Mm-hmm. And and because that, you know, that was when it was them, right? And, yeah. and not them being forced to be something else. Right. So so to to bring this all forward to your, you know, preservation of mid-century hotels, I'm okay with that as long as that's not the only thing. Like I I, I get it. Like and and mid-century is huge. Like uh yeah. um I, I um, some of you might know that I'm a cyclist and uh, I, I, in the winter when the weather's bad, which is nine months out of the year in Alberta, <laughs> I, I ride on, on an indoor trainer and, and there's a program called Zwift that I can connect to my trainer. And, and so like it's like a virtualized setting that adjusts the, uh, the, the resistance on my, mm-hmm. on, on, on my trainer. But they just added a desert thing with like full, full, it was totally like mid-century Jetsons sort of stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, and it's beautiful. It's fun. Yeah. So mid-century is a big thing. But, you know, like like you were saying, it's not the only thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that it's perfectly acceptable to be preserving stuff like that, especially under, you know, Criterion C, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you yeah. want to talk style. Man, mid-century, man. Well, I know. that That's a good place to take a break because Criterion <laughs> C and, and all the National Register criteria 
or something I want to talk about, of course, in the context of this discussion, because that's what's keeping all this stuff around, to be honest. So let's pick that up on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code crmark pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, we are back with episode 165 of the CRM Archaeology podcast. And we've been joined over the break by Doug. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So, Let's pick it back up. And Stephen, when we ended the last segment, you brought up Criterion C, the National Register, uh, sorry, the National Park Service's um, National Register criteria. And of course, Criterion C is for, uh, you know, the, the, the quick way to remember it is construction. Is it, is it the work of a master? Is it the, you know, something that was built by either somebody or is in a style that is unique or representative or one of the first representations of a certain style? And when we're talking about architecture, and we were talking about mid-century modern stuff, like particularly here in Reno for me, but it's all over the country. You know, that early examples of that, I mean, they're they're very iconic of certain areas. But my question is, does Criterion C or any of the criteria of the National Register in reference to this, do, do we have to, and I know the answer to this already, but I just want to put it out there. Do we have to actually preserve these things in reality to be in the spirit of the criterion? Or can you, in the context context of a building, let's take Notre Dame Cathedral, which we've talked about before. As everybody probably knows that's listening to this, it burned practically to the ground, except for the stone outside um, in some cases. Some of that crumbled too, but you know, a lot of it on the outside is still there, but most of the inside is gone. The roof is gone. Everything's gone. And But we have highly detailed digital scans of this thing. And we can easily build this in a virtual reality environment, which it already has been done numerous times because one of the first organizations that I read about that did highly detailed laser scans of the outside of the building, at least, was for a video game, right? So at least in video game land, which is not something sustainable because they could go out of business, it's been preserved. Now, if we use the spirit of the National Register criteria to instead not physically preserve buildings, not physically preserve things, but instead to digitally preserve them and actually use that money and that time that would be taken to preserve these things and the taxes that are paid on them and all that stuff. 
to build really great, high quality virtual environments that anybody can go from any physical ability level because disabled people can't get to some of these places and and make it open to more people. You know, you'd, you'd be you'd be seeing it in a virtual way and not in a real way. And I understand that there's very, very different feelings and things when you go and you have the smells. Sometimes they're good and best. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. You have the smells. You can touch the rock. You can touch the facade. You can you can be there. And that's a very different thing than you know than what it is um, virtually. But I don't know. Is it that bad? You know, do the do the criterion have to be honored in a physical way, or can we still follow the spirit of it in a digital way? Well, quick question: is the is the law written to preserve or to conserve? I know a lot of people use those terms interchangeably, but right. they are very very different. I think the sense is conservation. Well, no, the the. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> you, you asked a couple of questions there, and the answers are yes and no. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so yes to what? Le- no to what? Yes. So, are you legally like uh, under the National Historic Preservation Act? Do you have do you have to preserve eligible properties? Um, and the answer is no. You can mitigate in other ways, and in in that response like your your digital recording could constitute appropriate mitigation levels mm-hmm. is it the same thing no right is it is, is it a, a great thing no at least not yet because like you're talking about like um the 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 you know phenom- phenomenological i always have trouble saying that <laughs> um it's good to be on a podca- podcast when you can't pronounce words uh <laughs> You know that that element is 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 really important, and and like Notre Dame is a great example because half the people who you know are are were like outpouring, you know, like the the concern about you know Notre Dame burning, mm-hmm. you know, they're not Catholic, you know, like it's it's not there as a religious setting; it's there as part of the the public setting, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the geography and the feeling of of the city. That's the backdrop. And, and it is a place that tourists go to. So it has a public aspect that way as well, that if you travel there, you're probably going to visit it, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and, and so like tons of people have photos of them standing in front of it or inside it or, you know, whatever. And, and that is lost in, in the digital preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe, you know, someday in the future, it'll be all holodeck and, and, um, you know, you'll end up there and then Moriarty will try to kill us all. But, <laughs> uh, but generally, you know, it, it's like right now the technology is not there to simulate the most important aspect of this, which is part of the interaction of the city. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, in in my mind, and, and I'm, I'm sure plenty of preservationists will, will disagree, but in my mind, the most important aspect of cultural resources is not the stuff, but it's 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 how we interact with it, um, particularly for uh, built built uh, resources like buildings and, and structures and, and stuff like that. And and so so for the Reno of the future, yeah, like yeah, but by all means, build new build new buildings. You know, maybe preserve a subset for adaptive reuse or something like that. But you know, maybe with those new buildings, you, you maintain a something that ties back to the look and feel that people holding their heads as historical, Reno. 
So maybe you start incorporating mid-century elements into your newer buildings, right? Let's circle back to what people's concept of historical is here in a second, but back to Notre Dame for a second. As far as not being able to get the look and feel of the city and its setting within the city, that's a really weird thing to say too to me because the, the cathedral's 800 years old. So it's surrounded by a, a real a mix of of past, present, and and coming up to future, right? Like, they, like there's modern buildings. If you look at it from a from a certain angle, you can see modern skyscrapers in the distance. You can see the Eiffel Tower. You can see um, other older buildings around it. There's probably nothing that's 800 years around it, or 800 years old. That's right in its own block, except maybe buildings associated with Notre Dame. But it's just this mix of time, right? This mix of time that's around it. So what is what even is the character and feel of Paris, to be honest? You know, what is it? You know, there's, oh, it, there is there is new stuff being built. It, it does change. So how can you preserve that? What are you preserving? Well, hey, guys, like, I'm going to be really pernickety right here. But, like, there, there's... You <laughs> what? Got, like, nope, nope, very pernickety. I know, I know. Doug could literally see, like, ten castles out his window right now. <laughs> it's, like, it's like two. He's in one. It's two. It's just oh, he's two. Actually in it's two. just two. Yeah. It's just two. It's just two, guys. It's only two. I have to go to, like, other sides of the house to see them. Yeah, but, like, so people use the term preservation and conservation interchangeably, but they're huge, hugely different concepts. So, like, when we say preserved, yeah. that actually means it, nothing changes whatsoever. And then when you say conserve, mm-hmm. that means you basically say you're going to manage resources. And so most heritage laws in most countries are about conservation, which people will make that difference and um, sort of confuse the two and s- assume that when we're talking about conservation, they're like, oh, preservation, you will repeat it exactly 100% as it was when... I don't know, it got designated or there's a big thing where they'll turn back a place to like a certain period or something. Um, and that's a big thing in like the UK is uh, some properties, you know, they'll have like 500 years of history or something. And they'll be like, yes, we're only going to show as it was in like 1806 or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's closer to preservation. But in a sense, conservation doesn't mean you can't change a building or the look of the building. It means you have to think really hard about what changes you're making and why you're making those changes and why that building is important. Now, is that building important because a specific event happened at it? Like, so um, in Dallas, the book repository, that's pretty close to preservation. There's like that, that room, all those books have basically been in there since, was it 62, 63? When did they assassinate Kennedy? Somewhere in the, yeah, yeah, wherever, wherever that date was in November or something, basically they've kept that building exactly the same as as it was almost in preservation. But a lot of other places, you know, is it, is it because it has a particular type of architecture is it you know is it the windows that make it so important if it's just the windows you keep the windows and you know add modern aspects to a building so you know it depends where you are but if we're talking conservation it means a lot of stuff can change pretty drastically to be able to do it and there's a a term which i am now 
completely blanking on, but it's a big criticism is basically what they'll do is in the UK, they essentially hollow out buildings. So they'll keep the entire facade, um, just the outer wall, like, you know, if it's a brick wall and they literally gut. So you can look at these like in drone footage and there's nothing on the, uh, inside of these buildings and they've managed to quote unquote conserve it and keep it in the, you know, historical feeling by keeping the outside. But essentially all you've done is it's almost like actually Notre, Notre Dame where, or Notre Dame where you've basically burned down everything in the inside and then you keep the outside. So it looks the same, but it's mm-hmm. not, not any, anywhere all the same. Uh, so there's a big yeah. criticism is that of that as well. So you can keep something looking like it, but is it really? In the U.S., the law is called the National Historic Preservation Act. So I think that that covers. <laughs> <laughs> are we talking about preservation or conservation? It, there is a conservation aspect in that preservation is not always possible, um, and 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 then we can you know mitigate. But preservation is the first step, and uh, particularly for built built resources uh it tends to be the most important step um and and like that's you know that's the benchmark or you know um if it's eligible if it's or more if it's actually listed on the national register preservation is the default but then if you can't do that um you can mitigate in other ways although a lot of times you lose uh the eligibility status Mm -hmm. in doing so yeah and I'd like to bring up just one quick point here uh, because it's based on what I was talking about with the mid-century modern folks here in Reno and then also what what Doug was just talking about with, uh, you know, what what are you looking at with a certain thing? Like you said, is it the windows? Is it the blah, blah, blah? You know, what's what's making this thing? But, you know, we, we like to pass the buck as humans in general when we when we don't take responsibility for things. And a lot of times we'll say, oh, well, we're keeping that building around because it's a blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a it's a example of this. It's a something happened here. But in reality, it's people that make the rules. Right. It's not the architecture. It's the people that make the rules. So if someone thinks uh, that this thing should be saved and preserved and they get enough other people that think the same thing. Well, then it just will be, right? So if we all think, hey, this has to be preserved. And I think in in, a, in some cases that shifts, that shifts from a few people to historians to society based on the age and significance of the thing. Like Notre Dame Cathedral is now a societal thing. Like the entire world pretty much thinks this thing needs to be preserved and rebuilt, right? Like everybody thinks with few exceptions – that we should rebuild that and bring it back up to its, you know, whatever it was before the fire and, and probably way newer. I mean, I don't know how they're going to make it preserve the look and feel with brand new wood inside unless you're going to reclaim everything or make it look distressed. But anyway, the point is that's become a more of a cultural societal thing. But like the mid-century modern movement in Reno, that is literally being run and and and, and spearheaded by people who were kids when those buildings went up. Right. That's their look and feel of Reno. That's not the look and feel of Reno. That's their concept of the look and feel of Reno. If in the 50s they had asked their parents, hey, we need to preserve some stuff. What would you preserve? Well, they would preserve the stuff before all the mid-century modern crap came through. That's probably what they would have said. This mid-century modern movement has ruined everything in Reno. We need to go back to dusty old, you know, building facades and bricks. I mean, 
it's it's all about perception. And at some point, when it moves beyond the people who are alive right now who remembered these things, now it's historians that are, and that's an even smaller group. It's historians that are trying to promote this. And then once it moves beyond the realm of historians and textbooks, it goes into culture and society. And if it makes it to that point, well, it's going to be real hard to get rid of. But I don't know, Stephen. This, I feel like this, this kind of falls into like the notions of like historic archaeology, where you know we're, we're giving um, the the voice to the the voices, mm-hmm. right? Like um, that there are plenty of disadvantaged populations and underrepresented who you know aren't the ones in power right now, and if you don't you know take everything into account, you know they basically their their heritage can be eradicated under you know the steamroller of popular heritage or um just flat out development or you know whatever so in in the cases of this that you know the way that the law is structured you know it doesn't give preferential treatment to the the mid-century modern stuff Mm -hmm. you know and and that's why you have stodgy old historians and archaeologists and architectural historians and and whatnot, you know, talking about things that really aren't yeah. that popular. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, we're, we're there and it's like, oh no, this is really important. And it's like, uh huh. Um, and, and, but that's, but that's the point is that the notions of who these things are important to, you know, like it's, it's a diverse community. And, and as such, you're going to end up with a diverse sampling of uh, representative yeah. history. Yeah. And here in Reno, it's coming down to numbers, to be honest. Um, it's little about money because Reno is such a small town that if you have a, a voice and you're and you're mm-hmm. you're not afraid to use it, then you'll be heard by the city council and you'll be heard by the mayor. And uh, and there's and there's really just one company that's coming in. It's Jacobs Entertainment. And they're the ones that want to put up a bunch of new casinos. They've got this whole district planned for downtown Reno where there's a bunch of mid-century modern hotels. And to be honest, they're winning because they're they're just knocking stuff down. I mean, they already own the properties and they're evicting people and knocking it down. And the preservationists are trying to get them to either revitalize current structures, which just don't fit with their business model, but they want them to change their business model to make that fit and you know bring it in. But honestly, all the all the development companies need to do to win in almost every single case is wait them out. <laughs> it might be 20 more years, but they really just have to wait out the people that care about this stuff because a lot of people these days really just simply don't, you know, like the younger crowd, they just don't care about the preservation of these old buildings in general. Whereas the people who, you know, do care about them um, are, are are dying off to put it, you know, to put it bluntly. Well, and, and that, that's where that's where the preservation laws come in, though. Well, yeah, right. Like that's the whole point of having cultural You're resource right. laws. You're right, is to preserve that stuff. Is, is that is to you know? I'm not quite stuff. sure though yeah. that necessarily having gone through a lot of these things in different countries, um, I think people's reasoning is a lot more complex than they want to preserve the buildings. Um, a lot of time, it is actually preservation conservation comes in. Um, not because they particularly care that the building is there or old or looks a certain way. Um, they care about new development because essentially you mm-hmm. will get people who come in and basically gut neighborhoods and kick everyone who's there is out. So preservation yeah. and conservation becomes one tool for people to be usually 
in most cases, the little guy um, as a chance to fight back against um, development that usually is not going to benefit them. Um, everyone will come in and will say, oh, it'll make these, these number of jobs and blah, blah, blah. And, but really, it mainly goes to the people doing the development. A lot of people, gentrification, get kicked out or mm-hmm. um, whatever. They don't really benefit. The jobs that come in tend to be service jobs, so you don't get as much money. You know, It, it goes on. But I'd yeah. say that sometimes a lot of these things, you could actually have this fighting for generations. I'm not sure if you could wait them out because it will be the same issues. And preservation, conservation is just one manifestation of those societal problems. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure they'd go away in 20 years. I think you pretty much could fight them out for generations if you wanted to. I think it more has to do with actually you just have the money and you buy everyone out and kick them out. And there's not a lot of laws to protect people. And they just wait until eventually someone forecloses or dies off and then buys them out. So, I mean, in a sense, you well, could sort of wait for them to die out. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure waiting for a certain generation who has yeah. a connection to mid-century or whatever is necessarily the main reason of why people fight. I could be wrong. I mean, people could really love their yeah. mid-century, did you say hotels or houses? Or, yeah, they're hotels. They're, they're hotels. They're hotels in this case. All right, Doug, I'm going to cut you off right there. This is a good place to stop, and we'll pick this up on the other side. There is some comments about that to be made as well, so we'll be back in just a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun T-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, we're back with Sierra Mark Podcast episode 165. And Stephen has got some comments to Doug. (laughs) Was that a woo for 165? Yeah, why not? (laughs) Nice. Yeah, well... and this is kind of something he's talking about how uh, um, a lot of times uh, the, the, the push behind uh, historic preservation and historical issues and, and cultural issues um, tends to be kind of a sort of nimbyism. And, and I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately, how in, in some ways you can get like disingenuous, uh, like uh, historical pushes um mm-hmm. because that's 
that's the way that people can can put their foot down like um and, and you know like we're against this project but the only legal avenue you have is through um historic preservation yeah and 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 yeah i mean sometimes there is a historical element to it but a lot of times it you know that's almost the you know back burner of of you know issues mm -hmm. it's like yeah okay okay it's historic and um but you know more than that is the lack of other avenues to participate in 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 like review of, of projects right because they're yeah. private projects and yeah how, how else do you uh, get a say well and that goes in reno that goes to what doug was saying too about uh you know basically kicking people out and buying up the properties because that that is one of the big things and that is one of the big reasons why some people, not everybody, but some people are pushing for the preservation of the mid-century modern hotels is because the people currently living through in them are low-income uh, populations and there's no other low-income housing being created for them to move into. So you're literally putting people on the street and Reno already has a pretty severe homeless mm -hmm. problem, but you're putting people on the street and really kind of making the problem worse for a little while. And, and I think others that are pushing for development are just kind of hoping they'll go away and the city will take care of it <laughs> as they develop. And that's, and that's, what's being done. You know, they're, they're kicking, they're tear, They've already torn down a number of these hotels. There's over 60 in Reno. They've already torn down a number of them. And those people are either on the streets living with other family, or in a lot of cases they're living there because they don't have other family and they're just in sorry situations now. And I don't know what the, uh, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. And this also comes sort of like the dark side about, preservation and conservation is the ability to use this as an outlet to fight development means you have to have resources. Mm -hmm. And so essentially the only neighborhoods that are really get designated or buildings, you know, historic landmarks and whatnot tend to be in well-off neighborhoods. Um, and yeah. I mean, there, there's a pretty long history in, in the United States, but you know, other countries as well of, Basically, whenever you need to to build a highway, you put a highway through the black neighborhoods, and none of those buildings were ever considered worthy of historical preservation. And it's probably the same here. Is I, I imagine they're probably going to knock down most of those hotels, um, unless there's one that happens mm -hmm. to be in a weller off part of Reno, because um, those are the people that have the time and the effort to fight and get these designations. But a lot of what we do on historical preservation and conservation is very one-sided in a very narrow point of view of either experts or people who can use it as a way to keep their neighborhood from having a highway put through it or whatever else development's going. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it, it's a good idea. And it is um, what Stephen was talking about, how this is the only method for communities to be able to have a discussion with new development about what direction their community should go in and what it should look like and what should happen in it. And unfortunately, it's actually a very narrow view of what you can comment on, which is you can either let someone else come in and do whatever they want, or you can keep it exactly the same. Um, and that's not really good managed change, but I think that's a whole bigger issue about how countries and politicians and communities need to deal with how you do manage change 
um, instead of the sort of ad hoc of, oh, well, someone wants to build a, a massive hotel here. They're bringing mm-hmm. in money. Let them do it, regardless of the local impact on people. Yeah, well, right. and, and th- thinking that making it a requirement to uh, also provide new low-income housing would be a great mitigation mm-hmm. for, for tearing down these hotels. But but that's more based on current use, and, and I'm not aware of any legal framework where you can really push that. Right. I mean, unless you get like city council on board or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, local ordinances do that a lot. So it depends on the city. And again, unfortunately, a lot of those ordinances tend to go the other way. So instead of mandating affordable housing, they'll mandate things like, oh, you know, you have to have this much distance between houses and um, essentially keep it low density housing and not very affordable. So mm-hmm. that tends to be it. But there's a lot of local ordinances. And I know I should probably remember the name of this, but there's a there's a good book about how there's a real difference in the eastern United States versus the western United States. And that's how um, development happened a lot later in the western United States when cars had been invented. And actually how a lot of the car companies um, got local ordinances to essentially like the reason we have suburbs is because there's actually ordinances saying you can't have high density housing, which is cheaper and more affordable than like, you know, McMansions and all sorts <laughs> of stuff like that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of conflicts and in theory, yeah, you could just say any new development has to, over X number of acres has to have a percentage for low income housing. And there are, I know there are laws in certain cities and in certain countries that have that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't in practice versus theory doesn't always work out that way either. Yeah. And Reno's got the other complex problem of, um, not only geography, but economics as well, because there, there's a lot of the, the, the current administration and, and the current mayor, she just got reelected. Um, she's been pushing real hard for the last five years now for bringing in a lot of tech companies from the Bay area. And that is happening. Um, you know, Tesla's here and there's a number of other companies that are here and she's helped bring all those in her and the city council. And the good thing is, I guess it's, it's bringing these other markets into Reno and it's helping build Reno up, you know, but the, the downside for everybody else is a housing prices are going through the roof across, across the board, like all housing, new housing down to the 40 plus year old townhouse. My wife and I just bought, I mean, everything is, everything is going through the roof and they're tearing down all the low income housing in downtown Reno in favor of newer modern structures to keep attracting these people in. And it's, it's pricing out the lower, it's pricing out the lower income levels. Um, It's, it's pricing all that out. So yeah. Anyway, in the last part of this segment and the last part of this podcast, I do want to bring it back to uh, CRM archaeology and CRM archaeologists because I, I, I used to collect a lot of stuff, do different things, and I've totally gone backwards on that. And I don't know if it's because we moved into smaller places intentionally and gotten rid of things. I mean, I just, I just got rid of a bunch of more books um, just the other day. Archaeology books is the first time I've done that. I got rid of actual archaeology books, and they're just books I've collected across the country. Like I didn't really need my Ohio Mound Brothers book anymore. I bought that when I worked in Ohio. I don't need it on my shelf. I mean, it looks cool. Great. I read it. 
fantastic, but I don't need to brag about that to people. I'm literally not referring to it, and I'd rather somebody else got to enjoy that. So that's kind of an aside. But the point is, I, I'm more in favor of these days of preservation through publication, preservation through digital representation, and publication preservation through these other means rather than just actual you know, preserving of the physical things in the physical places. And I think it's up to us as CRM archaeologists to figure out exactly how and what that means, because we're the ones that are boots on the ground for this. And I, and I am talking about your two flake lithic scatters and your, um, your small can scatters. How can we describe these things and record these things with technology that may or may not exist right now? But how can we think about technology that could exist that would help us preserve the things that are traditionally difficult to preserve. How can I preserve what it feels like to sit in the Great Basin in the middle of nowhere with no cars, no airplanes overhead, no anything, and sit on a Native American site with Native American artifacts all around me, maybe petroglyphs on the walls? How can I preserve that? That's what I want us to think about as professionals. How can we preserve what that feels like? You know? Um, well, you can't. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You, you like also. First of all, it's not preservation because you're you're you're. I, I really hate the term like preservation through recording or um, you know anything like that because it's not. It's 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 transferring. You're doing a change. At best, you might call it conservation through recording. Um, sure. But you're you're not preserving it exactly in that way. And I I. I honestly hate those things where they're like, oh, we should capture at this very moment because landscapes are constantly changing. Like even if you yeah. were to go back 4,000 years, well, okay, 6,000 years, the the climate was still changing. You still had the late Holocene, you know, um, quite a bit of changes. You still are getting forests changing and all that stuff. Um, and so you're actually getting desertification of that area at that time. So, you know, if you go back 8,000 years, it looks, Reno looks very different than it did 4,000 years ago versus 2,000 mm -hmm. years ago, just on the climate alone. And people are, you know, constantly changing the environments and what they do and how they adapt. And I, I don't think... I don't think it's our job or maybe it's a fool's errand, I guess I'd call it, to try to preserve every single moment as it is because um, you can't. I think what we should be thinking about is, I know this is going to sound really odd coming from archaeologists, but maybe we shouldn't be thinking too much about the past, but maybe thinking more about the future and how we want our future look, whether that includes lithic scatters or roads or skyscrapers. I, I, you're exactly right, Doug. You can't preserve everything exactly 100%. And even if you could, what exactly are you preserving? Because like you said, I mean, 8,000 years ago, Reno was underwater. <laughs> it was under a lake. So, you know, what, uh, what are you preserving when you say, let's preserve it right now here at this slice and, and point in time? But I so, think we so can get... Close. Clearly, the preservationists just need to flood Reno. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like, let, let's actually this the answer. Century thing, <laughs> dam up a creek. Like, let, let's just, you know, bring in some water, flood, flood it out. I'm all for mid-millennia, you know, mid-millennia, not mid-century. So. <laughs> and so oh, our podcast man. ends with Chris's proposal to <laughs> obliterate a city. <laughs> I think it's a good place to stop, guys. <laughs> I think that might be a good place to start. Mass destructions. 
All we got to do is drain Lake Tahoe into the Reno Basin and we'll be done. So, you know, that's pretty much it, Um, which happens almost every May anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, I I think you're right. That probably is a good place to stop. Um, Let's end it right there. I'm really interested in other people's thoughts on where preservation will be going. I don't think it's very sustainable to just keep recording stuff the way we have been and then writing reports and, and putting these things on site records and dropping them in file cabinets. Let's let's think about the future like doug said but what's the future mean to you and what's the future mean to different cultures and groups and and what does preservation and conservation mean in the future you know what does this look like we're looking at file cabinets from with stuff from 20 years ago in it right now in 20 years what are we going to be looking back at for what we recorded today you know what, what does that look like so anyway we'll end it right there thanks everybody and uh we'll see you in two weeks That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Goodbye, Thanks, everyone. everyone. Fucker. I did. I fucked up. I fucked up. I started over again. <laughs> Maybe we'll just leave it like that. See you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Phone.